Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you enjoy the Bumps and Thumps podcast. In order to continue to get the guests on and improve our podcast, we need support from listeners like you. That financial support helps us continue to do the podcast and get guests on that we normally would not be able to get on the show. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N and the number three after and click on the support button. There will be options there for you to make a monthly contribution. With your contribution, we can continue to conduct the podcast and ask more well-known wrestlers from the past and present that require financial compensation to be on the podcast. Again, please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N and the number three and click on the support button. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you for joining another edition of Bumps and Thumps. I'm Brian Ferguson. Today, we have a returning guest. He's a wrestling historian. If he doesn't know it, then it ain't factual. All right? That's all I'm going to tell you about this man. He's a great guy. Uh, He's a return guest. So if you're listening from before, we welcome back Mr. George Shire. George, thank you for coming on today, sir. Always a pleasure. As I tell you all the time, I enjoy, absolutely enjoy talking old wrestling. And yes. I like your introduction, although uh, I'm expecting you're going to want payment in the mail for the nice words. So. <laughs> but um, yeah, I like to get things right. And you know that. So yeah, I do. when it comes to the AWA, well, there's a lot of, there's websites out there. They yep. have things on them regarding the history and the titles and so on and yeah, a lot of times there's just so many errors in them, and it yeah. always bothers me that people rely on them and yeah. take it as gospel. And you know, we always hear that old saying, "Don't believe everything you hear on the internet." Yeah. Well, when it comes to this, not only the AWA but a lot of wrestling territories, mm-hmm. uh, the information that's available if people just Google it isn't always what it should be. Yeah. So. It's fun when we can, uh, and you know, I do this on my Facebook page, you, yeah, on my wrestling page, and I do it yeah. on the AWA wrestling page. We try to get it right, so yeah, good oh, to have, I, good to be with you. Yeah, good to be with you, and and folks, if you don't follow uh, George Shire's Time Machine or the a- American Wrestling Association Facebook pages, you really need to. If you're into into professional wrestling, which if you're listening to this, I'm, I'm assuming you everybody is. George, if somebody puts somebody uh, information out that is not factual, he will get on there and correct it. And he has all the information uh, at his disposal. So if George says it, it's, it's fact. It's not misinformation. So, again, George, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I and wish I love I could- your- I love your sweatshirt or your sweater. I did. I did it just for you. I know you did. The, I, appreciate um, it. I, I wish that uh, I could have a a notebook with all the times that I got calls or I get calls over the years from yeah. the wrestlers themselves. Yeah, wanting to know their own history. 
Yeah. Because they don't remember or they didn't yep. remember. Yeah. No, you're and, right. Uh, uh, that's it's true. crazy. It's crazy yeah. stuff. I mean, they, they want to know when they were in a certain territory or, or, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it's always fun when I can have those conversations. And uh, yeah, Greg Ganya, I know you've talked with Greg. I have. And Greg, he, you know, Greg and I, I think we talk two, three, four times a week. I talked with him yesterday again. <laughs> and God bless him. Greg does not know one bit of AWA history. I mean, he doesn't remember when him and Jim won the titles. He doesn't remember anything that happened. And we talk about it all the time. Yeah. And he'll cut he, the other day, a week back, he asked me, uh, he asked me who the first AWA tag team champions were. Mm -hmm. And when I told him, he said, really? Well, how, how did that come about? You know, it's like, okay, Greg, we'll tell you, you know, but he's great. He, yeah, he is. Uh, I actually met him in person finally at Crusher Fest. It's oh, a yeah. t-shirt. Yep, him yep. And, and Jim Brunzel. Yep, uh, Jimmy's great too. Nice, nice gentleman. Actually got to spend time with him outside of the festival. Uh, absolutely fantastic gentlemen, both of them. Uh, have nothing but high regards for both of them. And they have a very high regard for you because they know if they, and we talked about you and, and, we, and they oh said, if, if, well, they said if George, if George says it, it's, 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 that's what it is. So yeah. Um, speaking of which, let's talk about the American Wrestling Association today. That's our topic. There is a lot of information about how this territory was started. Who was the first actual champion? Can you go through that with us? How it was formed, how it was started, and, and who the first champion was and how that came about, if you don't mind. Well, when we talk about the AWA, I want to share with you kind of an inside thing that most of the wrestlers themselves, back in the territory days, and you're probably aware that at any given time, there were 25 or 30 individual territories around the United States. Yep. The AWA was one of them. When the wrestlers came to the AWA, and even before it was the AWA, they would always say, when I went to Minneapolis, or I went up to Minneapolis, what they mean by that is they're talking the AWA. Minneapolis was the headquarters. The uh, offices for the AWA were located in downtown Minneapolis back in the day. And then later on in the 70s, they were out in St. Louis Park at a big uh, office building complex they had where Vern had offices for a while. But for the most part, they were in downtown Minneapolis. And so the wrestlers will say, well, when I went to Minneapolis, that's, that's the AWA. So if I say that in my mm -hmm. conversations, um, no, that's what I'm referring to, that they're talking right. the entire AWA. Okay. Back Good in enough. the 50s, from, from the, well, during the, the late 30s into the 40s through the 50s. Minneapolis, uh, after 1948, was an NWA territory, okay. part of the NWA territory. The NWA, for those fans that you know know this, 
was formed in 1948 by a group of promoters, Wally Carbo being one of them, Sam Muchnick, that's a name most people would recognize, yep. and uh, Pinky George, and there were a few others that uh, got together and decided they were going to form the National Wrestling Alliance. And their idea was is that we would have one champion that they would vote on, and then that champion would be booked and go to the various cities with the promoters that paid dues to the NWA. So just to clarify, the NWA was never actually a territory. Mm-hmm. It was a champion. They okay. never recognized tag team champions officially in the NWA. There were territories that said they had NWA champions, but they weren't officially recognized by the NWA. The NWA basically was a champion. And so each year at their, their annual conventions, the promoters would get together and talk about who they wanted to either continue with the champion they presently had, or do they want to change that champion and, you know, put the belt on a new guy. Luthez was the first NWA champion. He had been, and NWA was National Wrestling Alliance. Luthez, before this, had been recognized as a world champion, and it was the National Wrestling Association. So technically he was NWA champion there too, but because he was that champion, he, um, they decided they were going to hold a a tournament match, elimination match. And it was going to be a number one challenger, uh, Orville Brown and Luthez, they were going to meet with the winner to be the Alliance champion, National Wrestling Alliance champion. Well, before that match could take place, Orville Brown was in a serious car accident, and it ended his wrestling career. So they they just decided they were going to put the title on Lou, and Lou became the first NWA Alliance champion. So during the 50s, he... For most of the 50s, um, he had like a six-year or seven-year run. Yeah, and yeah. he would come into Minneapolis because Tony Stecker, who was the Minneapolis promoter at the time uh, during the late 40s and into the 50s, Tony, by the way, was the, uh, the brother of a former great shooter, professional wrestler, Joe Stecker. You can go okay. back to the early 30s and find Joe Stecker's name as being one of those guys that was the real deal. So Tony Stecker was his brother. He was the Minneapolis promoter. And he would bring Lou in. I mean, not often, but at least once or twice or three times a year. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the days, uh, Brian, when Minneapolis territory ran weekly cards, sometimes two cards a week. Okay. Fans, fans were really privileged in those days. We would we could get a card in Minneapolis on a Saturday night and have a St. Paul card on a Tuesday night or vice versa. Yeah. And they would play the storylines off of these uh, particular cards. So Tony Stecker was the promoter. In 1954, when Tony passed away, his son... Dennis Stecker took over 
the Minneapolis office. And along with him was Wally Carbo. Now, Wally had been an on and off referee for uh, Tony during the early 50s. Wally became his matchmaker. Matchmaker in those days is another kind of another term for the booker. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense for the modern day fans. Yeah. So the matchmaker was the term they used. And uh, Wally would come up with a lot of the finishes of the matches, and, you know, tell, you know, work with the wrestlers on what they were going to do in a particular match at the end and all that. Mm-hmm. Saying that, I just want to clarify that most of the time the wrestlers went in and just did a match. Yeah. They worked it out themselves, but they had the finish. So they knew how they had to get to it. That's what they did. Mm-hmm. So they were Wally and uh, Dennis from about 1955 on were the Minneapolis wrestling office, Tony St- or uh, Dennis Stecker and Wally Carbo. Well, Vern Gagne, he's a hometown boy. Mm-hmm. And in 1949, when he made his pro debut, uh, he made it in Minneapolis on May the 3rd, 1949, beating a veteran wrestler at that time, Abe King Kong Cashy. And even though in, in 1949, King Kong Cashy was, um, I, I think you could say he was near the twilight of his career, but during the 40s and into the late 30s, I mean, he was, he was their Bruiser Brody type guy of that era, you know, King Kong Cashy. Yeah. So Vern beat him in his debut. Cashy put him over. Of course, Vern could have beaten him anyway if he'd have wanted to because Vern was the real deal. Right. Uh, real, you know, he had that real uh, hooker shooter skill. Yeah. So during the 50s, Vern did a lot of traveling. He traveled around to Texas and Oklahoma and out to California and into New York. And he was in Florida and he was earning his oats, so to speak, as a junior heavyweight. He had been the NWA junior heavyweight champion, which is the only other title the NWA Alliance ever recognized aside from their world championship was their junior heavyweight title. And Vern held that for a while. As we get into Vern's career then in in the 50s, it became evident that Vern was wanting to be the world champion. Mm -hmm. And there was always, this is the story that goes around, whether there's fact or fiction involved Lou didn't want to wrestle Vern for the title with the title at stake and they had a mutual respect for one another both of them extremely well versed in the shooter style matches so they could Mm -hmm. work with each other and really test one another yeah and uh Lou didn't want to put the title on Vern the NWA excuse being that well Vern was a junior heavyweight so he's too small well, Vern was six foot, usually around, build at around 220, 225, give or take. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had about, I've got it listed down. Lou and Vern actually wrestled in their careers before the 60s, um, probably about six, seven times. And usually Lou got the nod. I mean, he won. And there were a couple of draws in there. But as we got into the later 50s in Minneapolis, Dennis Stecker was wanting to get out of it as far as the promotion part of it. 
And Vern saw the opportunity in his hometown to maybe buy in or buy the promotion, the territory from him. Now, another interesting little thing was taking place at the same time in the latter part of the 50s. The National Wrestling Alliance was actually under investigation by the United States Justice Department for having a monopoly. There were different promotions and things that went forward and said, you know, they're, they're holding us up. They, we can't get the champion. Uh, you know, they, they control him, so on and so forth. So the Justice Department was actually getting their nose into this. Yeah. So in 1959, to kind of silence the lambs, so to speak, yeah. uh, Sam Wuchnick and the NWA decided that they would give up Minneapolis as an NWA territory. Well, this okay. just opened the door for Vern because he was buying into it with Dennis Stecker at the time. So Vern and Wally Carbo, they bought Minneapolis from Dennis. Dennis was gone. In 1959, until August of 60, actually this happened in about September of 59 when they purchased the territory from Dennis. And uh, so for the next year, the wheels were in motion. Vern mm -hmm. wanted to be the world champion. Now it was his territory. He had no longer ties to the NWA because they had given up the territory. And he decided he was going to make himself the world champion. Yeah. Now, there are people out there will say, you know, the, the people that don't understand, the newer fans that don't get this, they'll say, well, yeah, sure, he owned the company, he can make himself champion, you know, that's not fair, and so on and so forth. The reality of the thing is, is that in that time period, there really was no other wrestler that when you, you talked about being the world champion had better credentials mm -hmm. than Vern Gagne. And yeah. I want to back up just one second. Sure. One of the things that the NWA did, and Lou Thez did this so well, Lou was one of those individuals that he wasn't really in favor of the showman in wrestling. He understood the characters and somebody needed a gimmick and that sort of thing. But yeah. Lou wanted to always be with the basics. He wanted to be the real deal. Mm -hmm. And Lou would always, outside the ring, you'd see him dressed to the nines in a suit, tie, always looking good when he was out on the street. You know, he wasn't running around in blue jeans and, and, and uh, flip-flops and that sort of thing. And uh, he, he always respected the business. He said, you know, I'm the champion. I should look the part. And the NWA also always had Lou fly first class to the cities. You know, it wouldn't make, and he would fly, he would fly first class. It wouldn't make sense if he was the world champion. He had to sit in coach with a couple of big fat guys sitting next to him, you know. So <laughs> they, they, they portrayed this thing really well. And Lou yeah. did that. Yeah. That was also important to Vern. Vern believed that the world champion should be a wrestler. Yeah. And he emphasized that. Now, Vern had that amateur background. He had, been an alternate on the 1948 uh, Olympics. He yeah. wrestled in high school in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. He played football for the Minnesota Gophers, was a standout with the team, Minnesota uh, Gopher football team. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
even had a, an offer to go and play with the Chicago uh, Bears. But he liked wrestling. He wanted to follow through with that. And he realized at that time that he could make more money. So that's how he got into wrestling. Okay. So when 1959 comes along and they're going to, Vern is thinking about making himself world champion. Well, obviously he was smart and he had to come up with a, a good storyline to make this happen. He didn't want to just come out and say, I'm the champion. He wanted to be able to say, I earned it. So there was, and this is where the websites out there, the wrestling websites and different title histories, where they get this a little bit wrong. Okay. Pat O'Connor at the time when Wally and Vern bought the territory, Pat O'Connor was then the reigning NWA champion. So in 1959, he actually made, uh, O'Connor made a couple of title defenses when it was still NWA territory here in in Minneapolis. And I remember one of them, I was just a little kid, but Kenji Kenji Shibuya was one of his opponents. So the fans knew O'Connor and he had wrestled here in the 50s as well before he got to the title. So they put out, as Vern is getting ready to launch his new company, AWA, with the blessings of the NWA, they put out a fictional storyline. I mean, wrestling is fictional to begin with, but they also added a fictional, fictional storyline. It's great. (laughs) The storyline was put, put together in May of 1959, and Minneapolis was still NWA at that point. The challenge was put out to the NWA and to its champion, Pat O'Connor, that Wally Carbo and other promoters, is the way it was worded, and they did this on All-Star Wrestling TV and also in the uh, Minneapolis and the St. Paul wrestling programs that were sold at the arena matches, that they had issued a challenge to the NWA and Pat O'Connor that Vern Gagne is challenging Pat O'Connor and he wants a match within 90 days or Wally Carbo and the other promoters will no longer recognize the claim of Pat O'Connor as world champion. Okay. Now bear in mind that Pat was the NWA champion and on these websites for those fans, you can Google them and I hope you don't because there's a lot of other errors in them as well. But when you Google it, they're going to say Pat O'Connor was the AWA champion. Yep. And he held it for 99 days or something, you know, recognized. Well, that isn't true. So this 90-day challenge goes out in May of 50 of uh, 1960. Well, the 90 days pass. And during the course of the time, there was a couple of things in the program that, you know, we still have heard, heard no word back from the NWA. <coughs> Excuse me. It appears that Pat O'Connor is maybe ducking champion or uh, number one challenger, Vern. So when we get to August of 60, the challenge goes unanswered. And it is announced that by default, Wally Carbo and the other promoters will no longer recognize Pat O'Connor as the champion. And Vern Gagne is the first recognized American wrestling 
Alliance, Alliance. champion. Now, in that very beginning era, it was Alliance, not Association, which it later became towards the end of the 60s, early 70s, which mm -hmm. I have pointed out, there was no fanfare about this. There was no announcement. It just became Association later, yeah. American Wrestling Association. Mm -hmm. But it was American Wrestling Alliance. <clears throat> Excuse me again. See, I talk too much, and then I get that's, a frog in my throat. That's all right. I wanted to touch base real quick. Uh, so now go back, and we'll leave it at that until you got questions. No, I got. I have a question. I have a couple questions, actually. One is you brought up something that I didn't understand until you just brought it up, and that's the fact that World Tag Team Championships, when you look at history, says Omaha version, San Francisco okay. version. Yep. Now I understand why, because I always wondered, and really, and I did some research on it, I never really found anything, is why are they calling it Omaha version? Why are they calling it San Francisco version? <laughs> well, you just brought it up because they didn't recognize the World Tag Team Championships. So when those territories did them, they said Omaha version, San Francisco well, version. <clears throat> and, and the best way to, to define that is when the NWA, like I said, they only the NWA was a group of promoters. There, they, they, there, was, there were no territories. There mm -hmm. were territories that would recognize and agree to be part of using that man as their, their champion. Right. So, you know, there were probably 15 or 16 individual cities around the country that ran or little territories that ran wrestling that were part yeah. of that NWA group. Mm -hmm. And once or twice a year, three times a year, they would get the NWA champion to come in. Yeah. And when that champion did that, you'll probably hear the term at some point as you follow wrestling where they called uh, the NWA champion a traveling champion mm -hmm. because yeah. he, didn't, he didn't work for a particular promotion. He basically worked for Sam Muchnick or whoever was the president of the National Wrestling Alliance. And yeah. he got his bookings from that person. And he went around to all these other cities and would go in and wrestle against their top challenger, mm -hmm. whether it be a baby face mm -hmm. or it could be a heel. And in general terms, the NWA champion was well, was versed enough where when they went into a particular town, if they were wrestling against the top baby face of that city, then the champion would naturally be more the heel in the match. Luthez yeah. was good at playing that role. Pat O'Connor had to do it. And Pat was one of the greatest baby faces in the business, but mm -hmm. he would do it. So did Dick Hutton uh, when he held the title for a while. And then later on in the seventies, you know, we hear about Harley race and Terry Funk and Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe. They all had to play that heel role sometimes depending on the city they were in. Right. But as far as the NWA tag team championships, there's where you'll see all kinds of NWA champions recognized in title histories, but it will say Florida version or yeah. uh, San Francisco version or that sort of thing, because they did not, the NWA did not recognize champions, but that particular promoter, because he used the NWA world champion, he could put tag team champions together. So there's NWA champions. I mean, try to trace that title history. Holy cow. There's, <laughs> zillions of champions all yeah. at the same time yeah 
I got a question for you. Uh, you said earlier about it was an alliance, American Wrestling Alliance, and then it went to association. Do you, what was the name change for? Was that for business reasons or was it just? That is unknown? something I don't know. You know, it, it's a strange thing because all of the all-star wrestling TV programs mm-hmm. and all of the arena printed programs mm-hmm. were always, and it was always referred to as Alliance. Okay. Um, as we get to the end of the sixties and then for sure into the very early seventies, all of a sudden in print and on TV, it was association. There was never any mention as to how this happened. And it's a funny thing because I brought this up one time mm-hmm. many years ago to Vern himself why he changed it. And his comment to me was, it was always association. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to argue with the champ who could put a sleeper hold on me and end my life. So, but the idea was, is that it wasn't always association, but promoters, bless their hearts, they we're a strange breed and that they only want fans to remember what they want them to remember. And if they tell you it was a certain way, then that's the way it was. So in Vern's world, it was always association, but I have, I actually have the, I guess they're called the articles of incorporation for the AWA American wrestling Alliance. And trust me, it was American Wrestling Alliance, and it was until <laughs> I noticed it appearing in programs and kind of re- being referred to sometimes as alliance and then sometimes as yeah. association for a mm-hmm. short time. And eventually in the 70s, it, the alliance didn't exist anymore. So to answer yep. your question, there was no announcement of it. It just happened. And according to Vern, it always was, but it wasn't. Right. I was going to say, uh, I had a photo. I don't have it anymore, unfortunately. Uh, when I was a kid, when the Midnight Rockers won the Tag Team Championship the first time, and they had a photo, you could actually read <laughs> on the belts, it said American Wrestling Alliance. Yep. And I wish I still had that picture. but Well, I have, I have several um the publicity photos right. and that sort of thing with uh, the, the first tag team belts that Vern used were the ones that Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon had mm-hmm. in 1969. And um, those belts have American wrestling Alliance on them. And then also those are the same belts that uh, Nick and Ray had mm-hmm. later on the high flyers had so on up until the road warriors which, you know, we're pushing into the eighties. They also had those original belts before they were, before they got new belts. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, the new belts also set Alliance. That's what I'm talking about. Those belts. There you go. So, yeah. Interesting. and, and, And there was a story that went with that Reggie Parks, you know, Folks know that Reggie Parks yep. made title belts. He did. And Vern had Vern had commissioned him to make new championship tag team belts, the ones that the Road Warriors were the first ones to wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reggie told the story later on that he had made the belts because Reggie worked for the AWA Alliance during the 60s and even, even a little bit in the 70s. 
And he says he got the call from Vern that he wanted these belts. This is kind of the outline he wanted, and he had them. So Reggie made them. And when Vern got them, got them, they said alliance on them. And Reggie says, well, that's what it is. And Vern uh, also kind of questioned Reggie. No, it's association. So, you know, God bless Vern. He 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 believed differently, but it you can't change history. No, no, you can't. Uh Speaking of belts, so the inmate belt. Yes. Can you tell the story of that? Uh, you you hear different things. Can you kind of enlighten us on this on this story of how that belt was created and and all and things? Well, the of that belt nature? was created because I don't have a I don't have a picture here. Uh, handy with me right now mm-hmm. but Vern Gagne used to wear uh, and Mad Dog Vashon when he was champion he also wore it for a little bit it was a belt that was presented to Vern Gagne in the 50s by the Police Gazette magazine and okay. uh, it was a, a very nice attractive uh, championship belt yeah and that belt was the one Vern was wearing in the 70s. In 1974, in uh, Davenport, Iowa, the championship belt was on a ringside table during one of Vern's title matches. And there was a ringside fan who ran up, grabbed the belt, and tore out of the building. And it was reported in the newspapers. I have the clippings, the newspaper clippings and everything. This was an actual crime. Yeah. The the belt had been stolen. Now, this particular belt from the police gazette people had actual little jewels and things in it. It It's a very attractive belt. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to hang on here because I'm going to, as I'm talking, I'm going to try to see if I can find that belt for you. Okay. Um, so the belt is stolen. So for a, a few months, close to a year, Vern doesn't actually have a title belt. The belt was later found in a trash can somewhere oh in Iowa. This is, again, it's all documented with newspaper clippings and things. The belt was actually found, but all the jewels had been taken out of it. Oh no! Vern had estimated at the time. Now, this is back in 1974-75 era. Vern had estimated according to the reports that the belt was worth $10,000 with the, the jewels as they were in the belt. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so the belt is found. And it's basically damaged, no good. So Vern didn't use a belt for the last few title defenses that he had in, in 19, late 74 into 75. And he wasn't wrestling really full-time at that point anywhere as champion. In 1975, in November, on November 8th, when Nick Bockwinkel won the title from Vern in Mm St. Paul, it's a match, Just we just had the anniversary date here the other day, 46 years. And uh, I can tell you, I sat ringside for it. I remember it like it was the day before yesterday. But Nick didn't have a title belt when he won the championship, of course, because there wasn't one. And it wasn't until about six or eight months down the road until that inmate belt, as it became known as, 
And the reason it was called an inmate belt was because it was made by prisoners at the Oak Park Heights uh, prison facility here in Minnesota, oh, wow. uh, Stillwater Prison Territory area. So it was actually made by inmates and very attractive belt. Now you've got yeah. a duplicate, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was really a very nice belt. And that was the one that Nick then held and wore for uh, the next five years as champion, yeah. almost five years, till yeah. Vern took it back for a year and then Vern retired. Then Ricky Martel, Jumbo Sharuda, they had that belt for their little coffee break uh, title reigns until it finally got to Stan Hansen. <laughs> and that's where uh, the fun begins with that belt. Uh, Stan was the champion. And man, I tell you what, Brian, we, we could do an entire podcast on that whole, that whole storyline, because it's one of those times in history where fans, you know, we obviously all got different stories, different versions of what happened between Vern and Stan. Yeah. But the long story short is Vern in 1985 was kind of working against some desperate measures because those fans that remember that part of the history was when Vince McMahon was raiding all the territories. Mm -hmm. He had raided Vern Gagne's AWA the most, taken most of the talent. And Vern was struggling like all the other promoters to keep the fans coming in with new talent. Um, Stan Hansen at that particular moment, he along with Bruiser Brody, they were they were strictly independent guys. They they would not work for a promotion. Mm-hmm. They wanted to go in, they wanted to dictate their terms, their money, what they were going to do. But they drew money. I mean, when you had Hansen or Brody on your card, they were huge. Yeah. They were both big over in Japan. And that's where uh, they made the majority of their money at that particular yeah. time frame. They were making mm-hmm. big money over there to wrestle over there a lot. Yeah. So Vern needs to come up with a, a big, colorful, national, hot name to hold his title. Stan Hansen didn't fit Vern Gagne's mold as a champion because Vern always wanted, remember, to have a wrestler. Not a performer, not a not a character. I mean, he had a couple of, you know, like what a couple times when the crusher held it briefly, but Vern wanted wrestlers. So he goes to uh Hansen. This is name recognition. The problem was is that Hansen was under contract to Giant Baba in Japan. Mm-hmm. That's where he was going over, returning. He did these six, seven, eight-week trips, and he'd go back and do them again and do them again. His allegiance, his alliance was to Baba. And I respect that. But Vern wanted to put the title on it. So there was an agreement being that, you know, you'd still be able to make your Japan performances, and and we're going to put the AWA title on you. And Vern wanted that because it was, again, name recognition. It made sense in that respect. So, so Hansen becomes our champion. Well, as the year went on, Stan was more and more not being available to Vern. And 
because Vern would want him to not go to Japan, Stan would want more money. And it just got into the point where finally Vern made the decision. Now, this is where it got a little hairy because they didn't tell Stan Hansen, they meaning Vern and Wally at the time, Carbo. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell Stan Hansen until the night of a title defense with Nick Bockwinkle that was going to take place in Denver, Colorado. And so that before the match was to begin, Vern and Nick went into the shower area of the locker room. Um, it was always a good place to have a meeting where it was quiet. Yeah. And, they, and Vern told Stan that he wanted him to drop the title tonight to Nick. Stan didn't agree with that. He said, ho, 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 no, no, no. I, I, you know I'm taking off to Japan. And he was. He was taken off. And that was Vern's concern. He was going to be gone like eight or ten weeks yeah. again. So Stan uh, said, no, I'm going to Japan, and I'm, I'm billed over there as the AWA champion, and, and I'm not dropping the belt. Vern says, well, yes, you are. You're, you're not going out of here as champion tonight. Stan, in a huff took the belt, left the building, literally left before the match. So that fact is true. Now, this is where it gets tricky for a promoter. I don't know that if Vern expected that type of response, mm -hmm. but obviously he had his main event just fall apart, of which there were, you know, whatever number of fans in the Denver arena there. And, uh, he, by the seat of his pants, he made a decision. He went to the ring, Vern did, and he announced that by default, because Hanson had dodged, he, he put the storyline to it that Stan was afraid of Nick. He dodged him. He said he wouldn't defend, and he, he didn't show up for the match. So by default, Nick was the new champion. Stan went over to Japan, and... In Japan, he wrestled as the AWA champion. They introduced him as that over there, and he had the belt. The reality was is that at that particular time, he was not still the champion. Hmm. Nick now was. And, of course, Nick didn't have a belt again. He got the title for the second time and no belt again, just like the first time. <laughs> but um, the, the, the part that gets tricky is that fans – you know, they want to pull their own twist into it. And they say, well, Vern did it, you know, armchair quarterbacking. It's always easy to do. He said, well, Vern shouldn't have just put the title on Nick. They should have had elimination matches. They could have had this. They could have done that. And, of course, eventually it could have come to Nick. But, you know, he didn't do that. He just handed it to, to Nick. I don't disagree with that. I just say that in the heat of the, the moment, Vern made that impulse decision. Yeah. That by default and put the storyline that Stan was afraid of him and Nick was champion by default. So Nick is then champion for uh, the next uh, year or so. And uh, till Kurt Hennig and a few of the others came into it, or actually yeah. it was, uh, yeah, it was Kurt Hennig and some of the others that came into it, but that's where it happened. So with Stan Hansen, Vern then got his attorney involved and he, sent a, a wire to Stan Hansen that he wants his belt back. 
And Stan, for whatever reason, you know, he was kind of like, you know, F you, Ganya, you know, that sort of thing. Because mm. obviously he was done working with Vern. Yeah. And he put the, he took the title belt and drove over it with his pickup truck. And that's a true story. So the actual title belt was all run over with the big old pickup truck tire tracks and yeah. the little jewels had been popped out and he boxed it up and sent it off to Vern. And, you know, here's your belt. And so that was the story of the inmate yeah. belt. That's yeah. I've heard that. You gave the more details, which I really appreciate. Well, and, and I'll point this out to you too. Mm-hmm. Again, some of the stories that go with it, you know, fans, fans will say, well, Vern had no right to tell him to lose the title that night when he was going over to Baba because he worked for Baba. And I always just step back and say this. When Stan was in Japan, mm-hmm. he worked for Baba and Baba was his boss. Yep. When he worked in many or worked in the AWA, mm-hmm. Vern was his boss. Yeah. In my world, I separate that. And in in my world, when I, as I grew up in life, you know, I worked in a bank for a million years. You did what they asked you to do. And unless it was illegal, you did what your bosses asked you to do. Yeah. And they were the boss. And if you didn't like it, well, you can either quit, move on, which is what Stan did although he did it kind of in an angry kind of way. Yeah. But to those fans that say, you know, his, he had more of an allegiance to Baba. I don't, I don't agree with that, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. In the AWA, Vern was his boss. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, there's been other situations and other promotions where they were told to drop the belt, they get angry about it, but. Well, and you know, it's interesting, Brian, because, you have to realize that the title belt, take a guy like the Crusher. Mm-hmm. Vern put the title on the Crusher for coffee breaks, as they call them, yeah. three times back in the 60s. Yeah. That's when Crusher was wrestling against Mad Dog, and that sort of thing. Um, most of those were for title rematch type purposes to build it up and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But the Crusher never wanted to have the championship. Really? That's a true story. That is a true story. And here's the deal. Crusher, we know what a big draw he was. Yeah. I mean, if you talk AWA next to Vern, and sadly, I I can show you on attendance figures that sometimes Crusher even outdrew Vern, which Mm -hmm. wasn't settling well with Vern, but that's the way it was. Yeah, The Crusher was a huge draw. He did not need that title to draw people in. And he didn't want it because anytime a wrestler has a title belt in any territory, they have to then be available at the promoter's whim. They're doing what they want, going where they want, that sort of thing. And the Crusher, if you followed his career through the 50s and into the 70s, there were many times when he would disappear for three, four months. You wouldn't hear from him. They always said the crusher's out of action. So-and-so injured him or he's been injured. Well, the crusher wasn't really injured. The crusher just took time off. 
Yeah. He, he took vacations. And then Vern would try to run wrestling cards and his attendance would drop a little bit. So he'd go to the crusher and say, come on, Reggie, like, you know, got to get you back in here. We'll do this storyline, that storyline. There's another big house and a big run promotion. Run. So yeah. a lot of wrestlers didn't want championships. Now you look at the NWA title. Here's an interesting thing. We're really off on a tangent, but this is, I think, right. this is important. <laughs> I think this is important for fans yeah. to, to know. The NWA champion, when Harley Race was NWA champion, Harley wrestled about 375 times a year. Yeah. Now, and it might have been even a few more days, but our times. But the thing to remember is there's only 365 days in a year. Harley was wrestling every night of the week and sometimes double duties, an afternoon show and an afternoon and a late evening show. And Harley was living out of a suitcase. And that was basically why they called them traveling champions. Dory Jr. did this. Mm -hmm. Jack Briscoe did this. Terry Funk did this. They, they were in Winnipeg one night, and then be down in Florida the next night. Then they'd be in Houston. Then they'd be in California. Then they'd be up in Detroit. I mean, they were just all over. Yeah. Well, that kind of a grind, eventually it wears on it. If you look at the title history or the title reigns of the NWA champions, with but a few exceptions, you will see that generally speaking, the NWA championship was held for maybe like two years to three years mm -hmm. max. Yeah. And by that time frame, Jack Briscoe, when he was champion for two years, that schedule that we're talking about, he literally went in to Sam Wuchnick and he said, I, I gotta, I'm done. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take a rest. I gotta have, you know, we gotta take the belt off. And that's where that stuff came from. The AWA didn't have that kind of a schedule. Right. But the NWA champion, I mean, they, it was treacherous. Mm -hmm. And most of the champions, by the time they got done, they just needed time off. Yeah. You say that uh, I've heard, uh, from a number of people that I've had podcasts with uh, when they worked in the AWA that that was a great thing about that or they got time off. Exactly. They didn't grind for 375 days. Now they'll, they got, I think it was, they would say most of the time May or late May to early June, they were pretty much off and then they would start back up in July. And then the winter time was when they really made <laughs> the money. They did the traveling, the treacherous, yeah schedule for those months in the winter time because i was told Vern liked to in the summer he knew people want to be outside didn't want to be in a building or whatever so he kind of accommodated that and yeah. uh well and it, it was it wasn't just Vern in the in the uh, upper midwest here you know our summers are precious yeah. and, and we're lucky if we could get we always tease in Minnesota. We say we have five days of summer in July, and then it's back to fall and winter. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, people are out water skiing and you know swimming and going on vacations, and the kids are home, you know, from school, and so wrestling didn't always draw inside right. the building, and uh, generally they would take take a month or two off. But when you talk about that light schedule, 
Uh, Nick Bockwinkel always said this, that he basically worked six months out of the year. Well, that didn't mean that he had six full months in a row off. Right. It just meant that he'd wrestle three nights a week. He'd have three or four nights off. Mm-hmm. And in between, you know, he didn't have that hectic schedule. And he could have a week or two in between where he might have some time off, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that was that was the luxury of the AWA. Any yeah. wrestler, this has always amazed me. In the 60s and the 70s, any wrestler of that era, if you talked to them, they wanted to get to the AWA because we had just that great schedule where the, you could travel by car and it wasn't six-hour, seven-hour, 12-hour drives. It was, it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that uh, the AWA, as far as the schedule, top-notch wrestlers, and they got paid well. Uh, oh, yeah. They got the same pay as they would if they grinded for 375 days. Well, I'll tell you what. Those guys did. Back on, back on my deck in the backyard in 1996, Nick Bockwinkel sat with me out there. Mm-hmm. And he talked about that very thing when he was champion. He said that um, Fritz von Erich had given him a call and had talked about, would Nick be interested in getting the NWA title? And Nick told me, he says, I sat down real quick and I started putting numbers to the paper, did the math. He said, I looked at what Harley Race was making. Now, in the 70s, when Nick was champion, he was making, now again, keep in mind, this is the 70s, okay? Right. Nick was making about $250,000 a year as champion. I don't know what that equates to today's salary, but it's up there. Yeah, it's up there. Harley Race was the NWA champion at the time, and Harley was making about the same amount of money at the time. So Nick says, "I, I sit down and I look at what Harley has to endure wrestling you know every night of the week yeah all over this place where i can stay home here be the champion and work in my little circle yeah winnipeg minnesota chicago milwaukee denver you know go to omaha maybe Mm -hmm. out to san francisco then back up to iowa you know just stay there yeah and i make the same amount of money he said not only that harley had to handle his own expenses so he says it, it was a, a no-brainer. Yeah, I had the better deal, and yeah. I, and as he said, I had six months off. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty amazing how with the difference between one organization to another. One last question. Oh, we can't be at the end already. But I want to have you back, and just I'm sending it's an open invitation. So I hope. Yeah, I'd come on once a week if you wanted to do it. Yeah, well, we I, might. I have no life. Don't, it's wrestling. Don't, That's it. Don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. But yeah, yeah. I'm. <laughs> the offer's there. Okay. One question. We talked a little bit about tag teams. Um, the 60s. Now, if I remember correctly, uh, first tag team champions was Murder Incorporated. Is that correct? Mills and Kowalski. Yep. Mills and Kowalski. Uh, give us a little let, bit let how just... that came about. Let me, yeah, I'll do that. 
Um, remember before we were talking about the NWA not recognizing champions, right? Tag team champions. Mm-hmm. Well, when in 1959, end of 58, when uh, Mills and Kowalski came back home here to Minnesota, Stan lived here. Tiny was here all through the 50s. Mm-hmm. Tiny and Stan had done some traveling together as a team in 1958 into early 59. And they were in Australia. They were in Japan, um, out in California. They were billed as the international tag team champions. And they had okay. some, some, some right to claim that type of recognition. So mm-hmm. when they came home in 1959, they originally came in billed as international tag team champions, but Dennis Stecker then recognized them as National Wrestling Alliance World Champions, Minneapolis version. Okay, so up until nineteen uh, August of sixty, when the AWA was formed, uh, Tiny and Stan were defending the NWA Tag Team Championship. And when Vern made his announcement about becoming the first AWA champion, he also said in our recognizing our first AWA champions, Murder Incorporated, due to the fact, and this is in programs as well, I have this printed out uh, or in print form, that due to the fact that they were the reigning NWA champions, they are now AWA world tag team champions. So they got that recognition. All right. And I know I said one last question, but one, one more quick one. Where did the name Murder Incorporated come from? Do you know? Um, actually, that was a, a name that uh, Tiny Mills and his, his real brother, Al Mills, Albert Mills, uh, used when they were a brother tag team in the mid-50s, earlier 50s. They wrestled okay. as Murder Incorporated. So... I don't know where Tiny and Al got it, although I will tell you this. Al Mills was uh, the older brother of Tiny. And Al Mills wrestled, you'll see him build in programs as Al Mr. Murder Mills. So I'm sure it was just a takeoff on that murder incorporated when he had had his little brother Tiny and Tiny was actually bigger. Tiny was about (laughs) six. Tiny was about you know, they build him at like six eight. I think he was probably six four, but he was a big guy for that era. Yeah. And Tiny actually started in the business. Uh, I think he was pretty close to in his thirties. Oh, you wow. know, he didn't start younger. Yeah. But he started later. But I'm thinking that's where the name came from. That they just okay. stand and because by that time Al had retired. Yeah. From the business. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. George, I want to thank you. I, I know it, I, I, I am going to have you back on and we'll talk about that when we're, we're done here, but thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And folks, if you listened before, come back, if you're new to this, subscribe, please. Uh, George is just a wealth of knowledge and George, thank you again for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. And please, let's do it again. You can you tell bet. I could just talk, talk, oh, talk. Yeah. And, and like I say, we can do other territories too. You it's bet. fun. Okay. All right, Thank folks. You, Brian. Thank, you bet. Thank you. And folks.
Join us next time for Bumps and Thumps. Bumps and Thumps.